Welcome to Inclusion Matters, a podcast about children's development from the Center for Inclusive Childcare. Welcome to Inclusion Matters, a podcast from the Center for Inclusive Childcare. I'm Priscilla Weigel, the Executive Director, and I'm joined today by two very special guests. A return guest, Nicole Burling from the uh, Minnesota Department of Human Services, the Autism Clinical Lead, and Josephine Iguacho, who is a parent advocate and a parent of children with special needs. And she's going to tell her story today um, for us on just that the process of an autism diagnosis. And so welcome both of you. I'm so happy you're here today. And Josephine, do you want to just begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? And then I know you have a lot to tell us about your process and the story of the diagnosis. Sure. Thank you so much um, for having me. Um, um, again, I'm just Finiguacho. Um, I'm originally from Cameroon in West Central Africa, but I have lived in the U.S. since 2006. I'm married and I have t- um, four children, um, age three through 10 years old. And two of my children have special needs and they are on the autism spectrum. So today you have offered to share your experience. So how did you first identify that your son sons um, might be on the autism spectrum? Sure. Um, this was right around um, the start of the pandem- pandemic around um, 2019, between 2019, December of 2019 to March of 2020. Uh, my first child um, was, um, at, at first it was my first child I was first diagnosed. And then subsequently my second child was diagnosed approximately a year after. So I had gone to my child's um, three-year-old ap- um, appointment, the world child check appointment. Um, he was just sitting in the corner. He wasn't necessarily responding to the questions or interacting during the appointment. And I remember talking to the doctor that he's kind of quiet. He's just like me. He likes to, just like me in the sense that, you know, maybe a little bit more quieter. And also I, I told the doctor that he likes to ignore people. And he closes his ears um, when he hears the blender, the sound of the blender or the vacuum, or when he hears noise, he closes his ears. And looking back, I think that the doctor had a very concerning look on her face during the appointment. And I had completed a three-year-old screening screening questionnaire for autism. And days later, I got a call from the doctor's nurse telling me that um, the doctor thinks that my son has mild autism. So I was kind of like somewhat in a denial. I was a little bit angry at the news. And um, I just had this bias about the Western world or the Western medical field being so easy to pathologize and label every aberrance or different behavior. And so I was very skeptical about this process. And so so that was when all of this started. So what were some of the characteristics that you first noticed in your child? So prior to going to the doctor, um, there had been some concerns. Um, I remember at one point, my mother telling me my elder sister had made a side comment and she asked um, if my my son was okay. Um, And I'll get to some of those signs. So at that time, though, I did not seem to have any concerns, actually. I was just Looking at it like another day, another unusual behavior from my child. So I didn't know, I didn't really notice this to be very concerning. 
Um, and at that time also, my mom had told me that um, our pastor's wife had some concerns too, because she has experience interacting with my son during Sunday school um, um, class um, in our church. And she also had worked with children with developmental concerns in her day job. So she had mentioned to my sister that my son kind of looked concerning, um, similar to what she notices in her job. Um, but I did not know about all of this at the time. So I, I only knew of this when I had gone to the doctor and they had raised some concerns. And so back to the question, some of the things that we had noticed or my family or the pastor's wife had noticed was um, my son did not like to play with other children. He would just sit there very quietly. He was kind of preoccupied in his mind and I would I used to call it daydreaming and he was he used to line up his toys a lot and so he would line up things in a very straight order and he was very obsessed with that and um, by age one um, he 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 knew all of his nursery rhymes and he knew all of his alphabets he could sing and recite all of those things. So I did not necessarily think at that time he had any communication problem because at that time I thought he was very well. He could say his alphabets and he was very, he's hyperlexic. So he's very advanced for his age as far as like spelling and reading and those kind of things. But he wasn't necessarily communicating as such. And um, he couldn't respond to his name when he was called. Um, he... Didn't make eye contact when you say something to him and he wasn't reciprocating communication and just regarding the eye contact thing as well. So I didn't I didn't see this as a problem because personally, I feel like maybe it's just a cultural difference. Um, I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't necessarily make eye contact myself, so I don't even think this is a problem. Um, other signs that we had noticed, um, when he wanted something, he would usually just pull me over to it. And, 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 and looking back at some of these things, um, him not meeting his milestones, they weren't things that were very obvious that I was thinking or noticing at the time. And I remember saying during the assessment that I cannot even remember, um, or respond very well to these questions because these are not something that I, I think about naturally because I have other kids, I have other competing demands. Um, so these are some things we really don't notice right away. And other things, other signs that looking back, um, he was showing some of the signs. He wasn't um, pointing to objects. Um, on a few occasions, he would wander into the woods. So we had a um, cookout, we had an event at a park, and he would just go to the woods, just going somewhere. Um, also, he was a very active child. He liked to run around. He liked to run around in circles, back and forth. And, and looking at this and just knowing what I know now, he might have been steaming and sensory seeking. Um, when he was younger also, uh, when he was very young in his infant years, he had some abnormal eye movements and he was evaluated by neurology. And I don't think that they could make anything out of that at the time. They were looking out for seizures and they evaluated him for seizures and nothing really significant at the time.
Uh, and and so all of these things, he used to show some of these signs or symptoms. But again, like I said, I didn't think it was very anything abnormal because people would usually say that um, boys are usually slower in their development and eventually they will catch up. Um, so I started to really notice a big difference when after we had returned from our trip to Cameroon. He was about a year old at that time. And so he was hospitalized with an infection. He was intubated. And that infection came about as a result of the fact that, like I said before, he was very hyperactive. He would run around in circles. So he had injured himself. And so he had he, he had some kind of injury internally. And that had developed into some kind of abscess. And we didn't really notice it at the time. So when we went to the hospital, um, and so he he had to undergo like an extensive hospitalization. He was intubated and they had to excise the abscess and he had to have a surgery to repair that. And so when he got discharged from the hospital, I noticed that his behavior changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of assumed that maybe that was just complications from being in um, like a, um, intensive care and from the intubation and the surgery. And some things that had changed in him, he was, he used to be a very quiet child, but after that, he was more fussy and he was just more quieter. And this, this is the time that I noticed some of these things most significantly. Okay. Oh, I bet that was such a scary time for you as a parent and, and for your child too, to be in such discomfort and be injured and internally injured, all of that happening and hospitalized. So when did you reach out for a diagnosis and who did you reach out? Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. So at that time, um, like I had said before, um, at a three years, um, doctor's appointment, um, when I had done the screening and the doctor had asked me some questions about how he was developing, they had called me and said that, um, they thought he was mild. He had mild autism. Um, and, and so uh, the doctor had offered to refer me to help me grow. And um, this is kind of linked to the preschool screening program and the early childhood through the school district. Um, but I had told the child, doctor at that time that I had already scheduled a preschool screening um, appointment the very next day. Um, and I had scheduled this because I had planned to enroll my child in daycare or some kind of preschool Um because at the time I felt like maybe my, my child wasn't really meeting his milestones. Maybe he wasn't really communicating or talking as much. And he had his developmental delays because he wasn't really exposed to all the kids. So I had started looking out for daycares and, and, and places I could enroll him in school. But then I had kind of um, put that on the hold for a little bit because I wanted him to attend the preschool screening appointment first. And um, it also attend um, um, his doctor's appointment first, the three-year-old doctor's appointment first. And so, um, so yeah, obviously we went to the doctor's office. She had some concerns, and then um, I had I followed up with the school district for a preschool screening the very next day. And my son did not pass the preschool screening, so I was referred to the special education program through the school district for further assessment. And um, he did not pass that as well. And so he was enrolled in a special education program. Um, He had to start that right away. And um, he was enrolled for a few hours, um, for a few, um, few days a week. 
So and at that time also, um, uh, I started having some concerns myself, even though I was quite skeptical about this process. And I, I was kind of calm. I remember some of the teachers that had done the, um, the preschool screening. Um, they said that you look so calm, you look so unconcerned after the diagnosis. And I responded that I'm kind of the person that seeks solutions and I try to problem solve. And I am generally calm by nature. And so, yeah, I was still skeptical, but then so I started doing research online. I started looking at the um, um, ASD diagnosis criteria and it seemed to fit my son um, quite a bit. So I, I guess just looking back, um, you know, I didn't kind of notice this. It was, it was kind of shocking to me as well because I am in the mental health field. And I never really noticed um, any of this. I did not notice any of this as being abnormal. And I think it really goes to show that autism um, is a spectrum. No case is the same. Um, and in my in my opinion, this kind of cases where it, it's 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 not very severe, it's not very apparent. Those are the cases that is really very key for early identification and intervention because you know, early intervention can make a lifetime of a difference. So again, going back to the process of me getting diagnosed um, after the medical evaluation from the primary care um, and also doing the preschool screening and my, my son had um, failed all of those. I was enrolled in spe um, special education classes. I had asked um, for a medical um diagnosis as well. So I was referred to Frazier. And so Frazier had confirmed the medical diagnosis. And so I also asked for a referral to audiology because, you know, some of the concerns was, is he not hearing well, maybe just the, um, you know, hearing problems. And um, I had also asked for a referral to Gillette Neurology for further workup to rule out other medical factors. And I also requested for the genetic study. I was enrolled in the SPAC research study. It is a long-term study and the results are still pending. So at that time, I really was interested in enrolling in the research study because I, I was pregnant with another child and I was thinking to myself, is this something that is a result of my own health behaviors or how can I minimize this so that my other children develop normally. So I really wanted to, to know the whys. I wanted answers why. But and I've learned throughout this process that genetics play a big role and there may be some environmental risk factors, but we don't really know all of the answers yet as to the, the whys or the causes for autism. But there's genetics factors uh, um, and also environmental risk factors. Sure. And you, you, I mean, when you're relaying all the things you were doing, you were searching for those answers. You were searching for more information. You wanted to know what was the best path and you wanted to make sure your child got everything that was necessary to help him be successful. And so when you look at the diagnosis process, what was that like as you look back now and, and relay that to us? What, what stands out? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, like I said, I, I really went through a lot, like you said, just trying to really find, um, you know, the best um, solutions and really get answers and making sure I'm getting my son connected to all of the services. Um, so we did a school evaluation, a medical audiology, audiology evaluation, neurologic, neurological evaluation and genetic studies. Um, but one of the biggest concerns, one of the biggest things that stood out to me, you know, one of the big questions I had was financial. How, how am I going to be able to afford, 
you know, the treatment or how, how am I going to be able to make time with my work schedule and all the commitments, you know, how can I really, um, you know, make this work for my child? So at that time, I got enrolled into speech therapy and occupational therapy. Um, my child had started the early childhood preschool program. Um, and we also did um, eight weeks of parent training course called, called Early Beginnings. Um, so at that time, um, I was put on a wait list to get um, um, enrolled in a day treatment program. Um, so those are all different therapy um, services that my child was getting connected with. I think that it was also really helpful to be connected with the county so I can get enrolled into TEFRA. And um, TEFRA is the uh, medical assistance options for those who may not necessarily otherwise qualify because of some financial barriers. Um, so it was such a relief to know that I had all of the services so that my child can get going right away. Um, and also transportation was a huge one to be able to have my child taken to um, transportation. So I, I didn't have to stop working. I was able to make all of these appointments because I had medical transportation. Um, and it was also helpful at that time. I know, like I said, this was during the pandemic. Um, it was a blessing in, dis in disguise that I was able to attend appointments virtually. Um, and so, um, you know, I was able to be able to participate and be present. And, and even while I was still working to be able to do all of this virtually. Um, on the other hand, I had... Um, opted not to continue some other kinds of therapy that I felt like it wouldn't necessarily work well through the virtual um, platform. So after a few sessions, I decided to opt out of occupational therapy because virtually I really didn't think that was working well for me. Um, and I also kind of like stopped speech therapy to the virtual speech therapy after some time. Um, the early childhood um, preschool also was virtual, and that did not work quite well as well. But it was so some of this, even though it couldn't really work very well virtually, but I was still able to get some of this knowledge. I was still able to get some of the skills that um, I was able to apply some of these concepts at home. After I had attended a few sessions, I was able to try to apply some of these things at home. But what really stood out during this um, um, this process also was me doing my research. And I learned that ABA therapy was the recommended um, treatment for autism and not the treatment program. Um, but at that time, there, there was quite a long wait list um, for ABA. Typically, sometimes it would take a while to get in. So I, I got a list from the county um, and, and try to look for providers in my area. And I was calling, I'm just asking questions if they're enrolling um, people, if they're in person or online because of the pandemic, how long the wait list was, what were transportation options and all of that. And I was so lucky that I, I was able to get connected with Caraval. Um, Caraval had just um, opened a new center and, and, and so they were accepting people. So that was really so helpful. Um, so getting started with ABA is something that really stood out to me. Um, so also what stood out to me is subsequently, like I said, my second child was in the process of getting assessed and getting diagnosed. Um, so 
because I had already known some of the steps um, and it was really helpful to kind of expedite and hasten things for my child. And, and so I knew that, you know, I really didn't have to wait um, because my child was at risk. He was showing some signs of um, developmental concerns and developmental delays. And he was showing some signs, signs for autism. Um, and I remember going at his 18 months, um, 18 mo- months world child appointment and expressing some concerns to the doctor. But the doctor had, at the time wanted me to wait until he was about two years old. Um, and like I said, because I already knew this process, I had been involved with my other child. I knew that I really did not have to wait. So if there's a genetic risk factor, um, there are some developmental concerns. And even though the my second child hadn't been diagnosed with autism yet, even though we don't have a formal assess, um, diagnosis for autism, um, I knew that I could still request a CMDE assessment. CMD is more like a um, um, clinical assessment for age, for autism so people can start um, early intensive interventions if they qualify and if they're um, qualified for the CMD assessment. So um, I knew that, um, I knew what to expect. And so I knew that I could start doing some of those things simultaneously. And I, I was um, waiting to get a medical evaluation. So I had self-referred myself to help me grow. I got myself on the wait list for main choices assessment, which is also an assessment to get connected with different county resources and programs. Um, so, and while I was doing all of this simultaneously, I had also enrolled in speech therapy uh, um, and also trying to get a medical evaluation. And um, looking back, even though we had all of these things like speech therapy and occupational therapy um, going on at the same time, I noticed that my son wasn't really making any much progress. He wasn't really progressing as much as we were hoping. And the speech therapist had agreed that we should look for more intensive um, um, interventions like ABA. ABA is really intensive. So looking back, I think that ABA, getting them into ABA made a huge difference. And so when you think about Um, the process and the pathway that you've just shared with us, what are some of the barriers or what are the barriers that, well, that you experienced and also that you hear from other families um, about the diagnosis process around autism? Yeah, of course. Um, I think, of course, like, like we've talked about COVID and the pandemic, um, things being shut down, Mm-hmm. was a barrier and we've talked about a long wait list too and um, the wait list can be a barrier as well sometimes mm-hmm. um, and I, I also think about um, um, the right type of therapy recommendations um, um, for for example um, I was initially recommended to start um, services through the school district um, early childhood preschool and um, I also was put on a wait list for the day treatment program. I was referred to speech therapy and I was referred to occupational therapy. Um, at that time, though, I wasn't recommended to do ABA. Um, and, and so I really didn't know about ABA until I, 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 I did my own research. 
And I saw a significant difference when we really started intensive therapy through ABA. Um, so, so looking at the barriers, like I said, you know, just recommending services right away and recommending the right type of um, services. And another barrier at the time um, I thought would have been a barrier at the time was the intensity of um, ABA. Um, I remember the doctor telling me after he did a CMD evaluation that they recommend 40 hours of ABA therapy. At that time, though, I felt like that would have been too much for a child. I, I was like, oh, a child needs time to play and have a normal life, not full-time work like adults. And so the doctor showed me a graph of um, how children who received intensive therapy, how they did over time. Um, and they seem to do really well. So the doctor said that um, they see a really significant difference with intensive um, services for an average of over two years or so. And uh, so at the time I got convinced and I, I kind of looked at it like, you know, children that had anywhere from 30 to 40 hours really should significant improvement. Um, and so I, I chose to do over 30 hours instead of 40 hours because I thought 40 hours would be really intensive and also the time commitment it would take for me and also for a really young child. And because there wasn't a huge difference in outcomes of children that received 30 or 30 something hours compared to 40 hours, I I chose to do um, about 30 something hours. Um, and I kind of looked at it like, you know what, even the time, even if it's this time constraint is going to be a barrier, I kind of look at it as like a short-term investment. It's like a sacrifice. It's better to really invest in intensive therapy early on so this can lead to um, children doing way more better and getting out of these programs faster compared to if they had to stay in less intensive forms of therapy and shorter hours, and then they stay in those programs for a longer period of time. So looking back, I'm really glad that I listened to the doctor and decided to do early intensive therapy because the, the outcomes have really been um, tremendous. And so outside of like, you know, the pandemic and time barriers and the referral process barriers, I think some other barriers that other parents can have is um, um, like people just saying in general, like we listen to the public and people saying in general how boys are stubborn, boys are slower. I do not believe in autism and, and just other people having biases about this diagnosis of autism. And I remember my own barrier about thinking that um, the Western world is very quick to put a label to everything. They are quick to force medications. And just that stigma of having a diagnosis of autism, I think, can be a barrier sometimes. Um, but I know that we've been trying to do a really good job trying to enlighten people and to reduce the stigma of autism. So uh, I think I think just looking back, um, looking back, I know that um, children are differently abled, and with the right supports and the right treatments, um, they can do really great things, and they can really um, like really respond well to um, ABA treatment and other kinds of treatment for autism. And so it was kind of like an eye-opening moment for me after my son, my second child, got diagnosed. Um, that's when I, I started to really like put the stigma behind me, and I started to really become really serious. 
And um, I started to really apply all of the things that I was learning and I started to read a lot and 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 I, I listened to webinars and I, I just anything I could get uh, and just whatever I could get my hands to. I really wanted to know more. I really wanted to learn. I was becoming less skeptical, you know, because after my son, my second son got diagnosed, I mean, things, you know, I, I felt like this was a really eye-opening moment for me. And I tried to put some of these barriers behind me and just try to look for more, you know, effective interventions. So across, um, during that time, while I was trying to really educate myself, I was getting involved in the different programs and education, I eventually got um, involved with the EIDBI advisory group. And, and can you tell us what, the, what, those, what that acronym stands for, Josephine? Yeah, sure. So EIDBI is Early Intensive Devo- Developmental and Behavioral Intervention. And that's for autism and autism-related um, diagnosis, early interventions for this um, um, diagnosis and disorders. And so uh, what do you think would have helped the process go more smoothly for you and and what would have made it easier for you and your family as you look back? And then looking forward too, and and also um, currently, what do you see as really helpful supports that you've had in place that have supported your sons in their growth and development? Sure. So, so I think what really made the difference, um, obviously, is the therapy and early therapy. And so, um, looking forward, what makes the difference? I'm sorry. Can you can you repeat the second part again? What resources or supports have you have you seen as helpful for your sons and your family? Sure. Um, um, thanks for clarifying. So, definitely, the um, the the resources the um, the early intensive intervention, ABA and treatment. Um, also, EIDBI in general, speech therapy, occupational therapy, early childhood education. Um, so, so all of these have been really helpful, and my my children are doing really well, and they're actually transitioning to discharge, or they have been discharged even prior to getting into elementary school. Um, so, the autism resource portal. Also was that's one of the first resources I got connected with, um, so it's been really very helpful. It's a wealth of information. Um, so the Autism Resource Portal is our, um, um, this portal for different resources and education, and um, it's through the um, Minnesota Department of Health, and so. Um, there's just different resources and information there. And I know um, the EIDBI group as well um, offers um, webinars and symposiums on different um, educational topics. And also through the Autism Resource Portal, I was able to get connected with different um, advocacy organizations like PACER and all of these different resources have been really helpful along the way. Other things that have been helpful to having like um, county benefits, for example, like paid parents and being able to uh, have provide PC for my children so I can take time away from work to care for, for them. Um, transportation has been really tremendously helpful to take them to therapy and other county supports and resources like medical assistance or TEFRA 
Um, and currently also I'm kind of in the process of getting enrolled in the Wafer Services CDCS. Um, I think there's just different kinds of um, resources and benefits. We've talked about the Autism Resource Portal, um, medical interventions and services like ABA, speech occupational therapy and school um, programs and um, advocacy organizations. I think also um, other medical supports like FMLA. For example, FMLA, with FMLA, I was able to take time off work so I can stay home to help body train my child and um, other medical things that have been helpful to me is having a handicap parking permit so I can park closer to building um, like really busy areas and building um, busy buildings and busy parking lots. So during this time, I'm helping to teach my children about community safety and all of those things. Um, also school supports and resources like um, IEPs. And also there's some courses, um, Autism Navigator and Autism Eco Presentations. So earlier on for me, while I was still trying to, you know, learn a lot about autism and interventions that I can um, do at home in natural environment, you know, I, used, I was attending all of these educational courses and reading a lot. And also YouTube has a wealth of information. YouTube has so much information that I, I tend to listen to videos on all of that. Um, the CDC Milestone Tracker also has been helpful for me to track um, the development of my other children so I can identify things early and raise concerns to their doctors and providers. Well, it sounds like you've you've touched on a lot of the, the barriers that you found solutions to, the transportation. Waiting lists, I'm sure, are consistently challenging um, and probably continue to be challenging. I know that that's an issue currently in a lot of situations um, around diagnosis. And you mentioned managing your work schedule and those barriers. And so as we um, look to kind of wrap up our conversation a little bit here, Josephine, can you um, tell us a little bit more about the EIDBI advisory group and other ways that you have advocated for children? So I'm kind of skipping ahead to, to some more information to kind of close out our conversation related to that advocacy piece, because I know you're very involved in that group, and I know um, that's what Nicole brought you to Inclusion Matters as, a, as someone who would want to share about that. Sure. Yeah, of course. It's been really helpful being a part of that. Um, so I, along the way, I have learned about policies and available resources, just being a part of the EIDBI. And I, I, it has really helped me to be able to advocate for my children because I have learned like how to use the right language to advocate for my kids. Um, I have been able to make more informed decisions as a result of my participation in the EIDBI advisory group. Um, and the EIDBI staff, Nicole in particular, um, they've been very available, very approachable, and they've been very helpful um, to respond to questions or concerns I have. Um, and they've also been present um, um, during school meetings or um, therapy meetings to help advocate and provide guidance about policies for my kids. Um, so overall, though, I, I think that the EIDBI has been very like helpful and they are very um, open to feedback and ways 
that they can be inclusive of different African countries in their policy and very open to taking perspectives um, of parents into um, considerations when they are making these policies. And with that also, one of my role being in the EIDBI advisory group is a, as a parent, I have been able to kind of help spread the word to other um, African communities um, to educate them about autism and early childhood development in general. So I have been a panelist member um, of a few symposiums and different um, um, webinars that were organized by the EIDBI group. Um, so I've been involved in that in some ways. Mm -hmm. You're really helping through your story and your sharing and your experience, helping others understand that the process of early intervention make, can make a huge difference in the development and successful development of your young child. And so as, as we close things out, what do you wish you would have known earlier? What is one final thing that you'd like to share with others out there who are listening, um, who might be navigating this same process of an autism diagnosis? Sure, of course. And I just wanted to add um, one of the benefits of being in the EIDBI advisory, advisory group is that um, I, I think that you learn, you enrich yourself, you're able to make informed decisions for yourself and your family and your community in general. And one of the perks of being able to volunteer as well uh, and being of service to other people is this professional growth. You're able to sure. build your resume and you're able to have networks professionally and personally. So what I would advise or what I would wish for other people um, navigating all of this is that um, I would say start early and do the work and stay involved. Um, I would say that therapy shouldn't end at school or uh, the speech therapy or occupational therapy or ABA sites. For, for the young children, we know that the home is the first teacher. And so there are a lot of excellent resources out there that we can use even um, during our time at home. And some of these are free. Um, but I'll have to say we have to do our part and um, to apply all of these interventions at home. Um, we know that research says that children are much more likely to have better outcomes when parents are involved. So I would say do the work, but listen to the professionals, the doctors, the teachers, and all those involved. Um, I know as parents, of course, we are experts in our own regards. Um, we know our children best and we have opinions and we could be skeptical about the process. But um, I would say that this skepticism shouldn't really limit us from um, being open and listening and considering ideas and recommendations from the professionals. Um, so I would say um, personally, um, some of these barriers, I had some of these barriers um, we've talked about, um, but listening to the professionals and doing the recommended therapy and ABA, it shouldn't, or early intervention shouldn't necessarily hurt. It should only enhance the growth of the child, um, because these interventions and therapy, these are just daily um, skills that we all need that people can learn from day to day. Um, um, people, um, the children learn about communication skills, they learn about 
self-help skills, independence, emotion, and behavior regulation. And these are all things that anyone can benefit from, neurotypical children, parents, even adults, teachers. We can all benefit from this. So I would I, I would say just be involved, start early, listen to recommendations, and therapy shouldn't help. The earlier we get started into therapy, the better. Um, in my case, though, for example, I would say I was very skeptical about all of this, but I didn't let that stop me. That led to curiosity, me learning and wanting to know more, and that led to hard work and me listening to professional recommendations and doing my own work at home. So I would say, you know, just teach your child to be involved and they should do simple things at home doing chores, getting involved in things at home, interacting with other people, and just teaching them independence and life skills. And I, I just really hope for all of us, you know, by doing all of this, I hope that we can all be a success story and we can all be living testimonies. Yes, so true. And thank you so much, Josephine, for sharing your story today and the process that you walked through to get the answers that you needed for the support that is necessary for your children and your sons to be successful. And it sounds like they're doing very well and that you're doing very well and also that you're helping others understand the process and, and navigate it without so much of a skepticism and being more open because of your experience. So I appreciate you taking the time today for us on Inclusion Matters. And also we do have a podcast that Nicole recorded earlier about the autism portal. You referenced that in your um, sharing today too. The resources there are amazing and certainly check that out and also check out our podcast. So thank you so much, Josephine, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for listening to my story. Great. Thank you for listening to Inclusion Matters. If you want more information, go to inclusivechildcare.org. And we look forward to another podcast coming soon. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit us at inclusivechildcare.org.